Thank you so much, Margaret. And thank you, Sound Team. You just worked it out so beautifully. Thank you. We really appreciate you. Um, so here we are. Um, as I mentioned, oh, look. As I mentioned, we're talking about um, uh, anxiety today, as Lonnie mentioned. And Lonnie, was that thing about that you want, to, want me to switch talk topics because I'm calling forth anxiety in my choice of top talk? talk? <laughs> okay, just curious. It seems that there is a bit of anxiety floating around the world here these days for various reasons that I probably don't need to go into. You're probably vastly familiar with what's going on. So I am going to be doing a, a brief series about anxiety. And, um, and I'm, speaking of anxiety, I have to use this thing to change the slides. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> oh, okay, I had it upside down. Okay, so... <laughs> So you're in good hands. Let me just put it that way. <laughs> All right. So anyway, um, before I, I delve into this talk about anxiety, though, I wanted to, to remind all of us that it's kind of a, a tradition of our denomination, Science of Mind or Centers for Spiritual Living, whichever you choose to call it, to talk about the, uh, the basics of the tradition in the first month of the year. Um, now, it's the last day of the first month of the year, and I forgot. I forgot to talk about the basics of the tradition, so I thought I'd just kind of go over it now because it's relevant to what I'm saying about anxiety. So if you look at this slide here, it says that love is all there is, and that's one of our, that's one of our classic beliefs in this denomination, is that everything is love. Love created the world out of itself to know itself. Love was a hidden treasure that longed to be known, or that loved to be known, and it created the world out of itself so that it might know itself. Because love is all there is, and because we're here as part of material existence, that we are also one with love. We are the essence of love here in form. We don't always act like it, but for another day, that's also part of love itself as well. And one of the ways that we manifest or experience love on the earth is through the power of our thought, the power of our belief. In this teaching, in, the, in the, one of the early curriculums, we, taught, we teach that thought plus emotion equals belief. It's also in the Christian Gospels that it is done unto you as you believe. And so that our experience of love here on earth is determined by the quality of our thoughts. Did it go? You make it happen, Brian. Oh, maybe I pushed the wrong one. Okay. <laughs> okay, so part of the way that we, that we manifest love here on the planet Earth is through, is through laws. Now, some of you, I'm sure all of you know that there are, there are natural laws that are around us all the time, like the law of gravity. We are always participating with the law of gravity. We are always participating with laws of thermodynamics. We are always participating with laws of physiology, natural physical laws that affect us and that impact us every day of our lives, even if we're not thinking about it. There are also spiritual laws in the universe. And the spiritual law that we are most concerned with in this teaching is the law that brings love into form. We call that the law of mind or the law of cause and effect. And again, the quality of our thought or the quality of our belief affects the quality of our life. So if we're thinking a lot about lack all of the time, then we are going to experience lack wherever we look. You know, a good example of that is Scrooge, right? We did Scrooge here at Christmas. Scrooge, sitting right over there, who did the sacred reading. <laughs> Scrooge believed in lack. And so even though he had a lot of money, he experienced lack and stinginess and a lack of generosity and everything that he did until he had a transformation where he saw abundance and then everything that he did was abundance. 
We all have an inner Scrooge. We all have an inner heel Scrooge. So everything that we think has an impact upon the quality of our lives. Oh, okay, back to law. Okay, electricity was a reality. This is an Ernest Holmes quote. Ernest Holmes is our founder. He's sitting right here. Right here is my bud, Ernest, sitting next to my dog, Sarah Swati, dressed like a nun, just in case you're wondering. Electricity was a reality in the universe when Moses led the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And this is true of all natural laws. They've all been here forever. They've always existed, but only when we understand them may they, may they be used. May they be used effectively. And the same thing is true for the law of mind. Ernest Holmes also said that ignorance of law does not excuse us from the effect of the law. So again, if we're thinking about lack and saying, well, this should be different, I'm experiencing lack, or we're thinking about fear, or we're thinking about worry, that my life should be different. If we're thinking about worry or fear or lack, and, and we're ignorant of the law that that's going to produce the appearance of fear and worry and lack in our lives, we are not excused from our thoughts. Our thoughts always have power. So, um, now, effective use of law, because we have a binary operating system within us, right? We have a binary operating system, which we call the ego. The ego sees things in black and white. If I do this, this has got to work. But the thing about spiritual law is that it is often counterintuitive. It is of, often the opposite of what we think it is. So, for example, the, the, the example that I always use in terms of a paradox is the idea that it is in giving that we receive. The ego would say that it is in receiving that we receive. But in truth, in spiritual truth, in spiritual law, it is in giving that we receive. One of the most counterintuitive uses of physical law that I know is through the lowly hula hoop. Now, many of you know that I struggle with insomnia sometimes, although I wouldn't necessarily call it a struggle because I wake up happy and curious in the middle of the night, 2 a.m., and the other night I woke up and I said to myself, you know what? Now seems like a good time to research the physics of hula hoops. Yep, that's what I need to do at 2 a.m., is to look at the physical law that govern the actions of hula hoops. Now, granted, it was, it was a while ago, and, and it was, uh, you know, 2 a.m., so I don't exactly remember all the physical laws, but hula hoops are about gravity, but also transcending gravity through things like torque and mass and momentum and other things that I can't remember, <laughs> centrifugal force, but the thing about using a hula hoop is that making all of those laws work, it's counterintuitive. And when I was a kid and I tried to use a hula hoop because my big sister Nancy, who was really pretty and popular and the captain of the cheerleaders and whatnot, she could use a hula hoop and I couldn't. And, and I, was, I wanted to be like my sister Nancy, my big sister Nancy. So I tried it and I thought, you know, the hula hoop goes like this, so I'm going to make my hips go like this. It doesn't do it that way. It doesn't. The action of a hula hoop is different. You have to move back and forth like this. Like this, you don't swivel your hips, you move back and forth like this. And so if I were to swivel my hips like that, there it hits the microphone, gravity takes over and it falls to the ground, right? So again, that is a counterintuitive use of law, and it doesn't work if you're ignorant of the law. The law works through our specialized use of the law. I have to do it again so we don't end on failure here, okay? All right, here we go. The laws, <laughs> that's my microphone thing doing. Maybe I'll just skip the hula hoop. This is... This is going well, don't you think? <laughs> yeah. How do you like my talk so far? <laughs> oh, you know, just to, to be even more um, ADD, I just encountered this. I think this applies to this talk. This is in honor of Thich Nhat Hanh, who passed away recently, and he says, please call me by my true names so I may know that my joy and pain are one. 
So please call me by my true name so that I know that when the slide doesn't work and when the slide does work, that it's all one, okay? How's that? Anyway, so that it is, a, it is a counterintuitive use of law, and spiritual law is very much like the hula hoop. It is counterintuitive how we use spiritual law. Now, if I could have the next slide, please. We're going to look at anxiety today, and the way that we address anxiety often has the opposite effect of what we want. The way that we address anxiety may actually increase anxiety. And I think that's good for us to know because a lot of the world is pretty anxious right now. And if we can do something in this spiritual circle to just kind of lower the anxiety screen that we're all bumping up against, that'll have an impact on the whole world because we ripple this message out into the world. Okay, so our purpose today is to develop a deeper understanding of anxiety. Last week we talked about anxiety, and I'd like to go a little bit deeper with it. We're going to work with the creative power of the universe, even though I may not mention the law again. Just know that this speech is, or this talk is about working with the creative power of the universe. And the purpose of doing that is to help us lead better lives, better, more productive, sweeter, deeper lives. It is, to quote Mary Oliver, to help us lean into our one wild and precious life. Who here wants a wild and precious life? Who here knows they already have a wild and precious life? And who here knows that perhaps there is more wildness and preciousness that is seeking expression through you in marvelous, wonderful, mystical, fabulous, expansive ways that not only bless you, but that bless others and bless the entire cosmos? The more wild, precious lives we can lead, the bigger blessing we are, again, to ourselves, but to everyone, because everything ripples, everything moves forward, everything moves out and circulates. So that's what we're about, and I'm kind of excited about that today. Tech, screw-ups, whatever, it doesn't matter. This is about living our best, most productive, most wonderful, most fabulous, most joyful, most peaceful, most loving, compassionate, kind life ever. When you walk through those doors today, that's what I want for you, okay? <laughs> so, um, <laughs> we're... <laughs> I'm basing this, this uh, talk somewhat on I'm using this book called Don't Feed the Monkey Mind. It's for sale in our bookstore. And it's, it's actually by somebody named Jennifer Shannon, but I kept, think, I kept calling her Molly Shannon. So I put a picture of Molly Shannon, you know, superstar, right? Superstar. Anybody remember how Molly Shannon deals with her anxiety? Yeah, she sticks her hands in her armpits and then she smells. <laughs> okay. You didn't hear that in church. I'm not recommending that, okay? <laughs> Let's see the next slide, which is the picture of the real author. That's Jennifer Shannon, okay? So we want to give her some props. Let's give Jennifer Shannon some props for writing this good book. <laughs> that is Jennifer, not Molly Shannon. That's her full name, okay? Oh, okay, so this is an anxiety recap. Now, in this book, it's called Feeding the Monkey Mind, right? And in the book, she talks about how a monkey is a very sort of wild animal. It leaps all over the place. It jumps around. It goes from topic to topic to topic, and it's somewhat out of control. As I shared last week, my husband had a monkey for a while. I'm so sorry I missed that. I was not in his life at the time, but the monkey was a pretty wild thing, right? So the ego is, is like a monkey, our separate self or ego. It's not a bad thing. It's just a sweet little monkey, and it's trying to protect us. Actually, one of the functions is that it has this, this thing in the brain called the amygdala, and much of our sensory information passes through the amygdala so it can screen it, like the airport screening lines, and see if it's anything dangerous. So the monkey mind perceives threats, and sometimes they are legitimate threats, sometimes things that will really hurt us, like something darting out in front of us, our car, or our car moving too quickly when we're about to step off the sidewalk. 
but it also misperceives threats. The monkey mind can misinterpret threats based on faulty information or based on old conditioning. Some of the assumptions that the monkey mind makes is that it often overestimates threats. It feels that a threat is much bigger than it needs to be, right? I know that when we were starting to look at COVID, after we'd you know, discovered, first we thought it was going to be six weeks and done. Then later on, we realized that it was going to go on and on and on and on and on. And there was a lot of misperception about threats, about the impact on the church, right, For, in the leadership. So, the, and then the other part of that is that it underestimates our abilities to cope with the threats. So both of that was going on as we were figuring out what to do with the church and COVID. And we had to kind of breathe deeply and rise above it and trust in something greater, something that holds all misperceptions and perceptions, that holds all abilities and inabilities and one, and knows that one is one, that they are one and the same, that calls them all by their true name, that it's all God, that it's all love, working itself out, sorting itself out, inexplicably intertwined in everything to evolve upward, to spiral upward. Okay, <laughs> some strategies that we have for anxiety may feel helpful, but they secretly reinforce anxiety. Now, I have a picture of my dog Bartok there. He's the one who's um, got his teeth bared. And the reason I have a dog picture <laughs> up there is that Honestly, when I thought about an example, a very benign example of how anxiety works in our lives, I thought about how, how difficult it is to train a dog not to bark at the mailman when the mailman comes to the house, right? When the mailman comes to the house, the dog senses that through its amygdala. A dog has an amygdala in its brain just like us, and it perceives a mailman as a threat. Some dogs, not all dogs. My dog does. And the, the dog will bark at the mailman because he is sure that the mailman is a threat. The mailman comes boldly up the steps of the house and he touches the house. And for all the dog knows, he could come inside and he could eat the dog's kibble and he could drink out of the toilet bowl. And that's just wrong. That's just wrong, according to the dog. <laughs> Probably according to the mailman too, but that's not, <laughs> yeah. So the dog barks, the dog barks, and then guess what happens? The mailman goes away, and the dog says, you're welcome. <laughs> Saved you all from that, didn't I? Right? And that's a little bit how anxiety works. On, on more of a serious level, um, if anybody here has an addiction, no need to raise your hand or your pinkies or anything. I'll raise my hand. I'm addicted to, to candy or chocolate, food you know? And um, sometimes if you are struggling with an addiction and if you eat something bad and you feel badly about it and you feel badly about yourself, what do you do to alleviate the anxiety of feeling badly? See? <laughs> A plus, everybody. <laughs> and it works for other substances as well. So that's kind of how the cycle of anxiety works against, it, against itself. Hello. The angels are speaking. <laughs> Thank you. I love the timing of cell phone rings. It's always perfect. The angels just affirmed that that was a true statement, didn't they? We're going to talk about some of those strategies about how anxiety works against itself. Okay, so the first, the first idea is that we believe this. I must be certain of the outcome before I act. 
I have to be certain. The anxiety does not like uncertainty. So the anxiety within us says, I must be certain of the outcome before I act. So therefore, if I'm not certain, I don't act. Has anyone ever experienced this? Does uncertainty prevent you from moving forward? Ever? Anybody? Show of hands. Show of pinkies. <laughs> All right. All right. The example that the author gives in her book, that uh, Jennifer, not Molly Shannon, gives in her book, is that she's, when she sat down to write that book, she wasn't certain how it would turn out. She didn't know how it would turn out. She wasn't a writer. She didn't know if she was a good writer. She was a therapist. She thought all the other therapists would read her book and laugh at her, right? She wasn't certain if it would be a good book. And so the way that she coped with that is that she sat down to write and she felt the anxiety. And then, strangely enough, she started looking around her home and out the window. And she said, you know what? No one has picked up the dog poo lately. This feels like a good time to pick up the dog poo. In my home, it's often, you know what? This feels like a good time to get the snake and get the hair out of the shower drain because it's time to write. I believe our friend Jennifer, who is sitting behind the computer, once told me that she likes to alphabetize her spice rack at times like these. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how compelling everything can feel when it's time to do something where the outcome is a little bit uncertain, where you don't exactly know what's going to happen? And that's just the nature of a lot of things. I mean, we're using writing as an example, but it could be a difficult conversation that you could have. You know, I know people that, that help people organize their homes for, for a living, and sometimes even the threat of organizing something is, is too much because you're uncertain. You're uncertain as to how it's going to turn out and what you're going to need to look at and what you're going to need to let go of and will you be able to do it. That has an impact upon us. And the way that this feeds the monkey is that, let's go back to Jennifer, not Molly Shannon again. Molly, uh, Jennifer Shannon sits down. She tries to write her book. She feels anxious. Then she decides it's time to pick up the dog poo in the backyard, right? And all of a sudden, when she gets up away from the computer, she feels better. And the anxiety says, ah, that's how you relieve anxiety. You step away from your dreams, and you do what feels more comfortable. <laughs> And that, my beloved friends, keeps us stuck. That keeps us stuck. That actually feeds the illusions that anxiety creates within us, that writing is scary and picking up dog poo is safe. Right? <laughs> so how do we get around that? Well, I don't know. In my experience, you know, again, if it's, if it's counterintuitive, it, it I think many, many spiritual healings, many uses of spiritual law are counterintuitive. And the thing that I do in particular, you know, writing a sermon once a week or so and writing a, a, a memoir, which I can't talk about because I'm procrastinating too bad. Okay. <laughs> this is not my therapy session. I'll just move on. But, <laughs> but anyway, the, the, thing, the thing that I do, and I think that the thing that a lot of people do for things, writing or other creative projects or other things, is to just commit to doing small chunks, right? There's a whole science around that called the Kaizen method, where you just do one thing. If you're struggling with flossing, you floss three teeth and call it a day. If you're struggling with exercise, you march in front of the television during the commercials or during, during a 20-minute show. You know, you just do things in small chunks. With writing, if I can tell myself, all you need to do is sit down and write one sentence, then usually it turns into at least a half hour of writing. 
So if there's something in your life that you're procrastinating about, that you're withholding your, your energy from, your life force from, because it feels too uncertain, is there a way that you can break it into a small chunk and say, you know what, I don't have to do the whole thing today? I don't really have to face the uncertainty for very long. All I need to do is get started, get started, make a commitment to get started, and then see where that takes you. And the other thing about that is to do it every day. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I know. Okay, so I just lied in church like I do it every day. I don't. But, <laughs> but to make a effort to do it every day. And then ultimately it gets done eventually. And, and it, it stops feeding the monkey anxiety that would hold us back and starts to develop a healthier relationship with the anxiety, with the, with the impetus within us that wants us to move forward and live beautiful, productive, wild, and precious lives. Okay? So that's the first one. The second one is this one. That's my sister's collie dressed up as... Um, Spanish Inquisition, I guess. I, I, I don't know. I, I think sometimes we have an inner Spanish inquis inquisitor within us, and I know she dressed him up like that because he has a long face. And in, in many of the pictures of the Spanish Inquisition, they had very long faces. So naturally, you're going to dress your collie up as a Spanish inquisitor. Because it just goes... <laughs> anyway. <laughs> okay, so the second theory is, I must be perfect. This is what we tell ourselves. I must be perfect, so I avoid risk. And this is a time for us to ask ourselves, does the need for perfection stop my own personal growth? Because, you know, we grow through stretching. We grow through lifting. We grow muscles by lifting things that are just a little bit too heavy for us, right? We grow through the, our willingness to take risk. And if we are committed to being perfect in everything, if we are afraid of failure, if we are afraid of appealing, appeal, uh, in, appearing imperfect, then we will never take risks. The example that she used in the book was about a guy that had to make decisions for his work and he could never make a decision because he was always afraid he was going to pick the wrong one. You know, that, I'm sure that happens to a lot of us, is that we're afraid to make a decision, we're afraid to move forward because we're afraid we're going to pick the wrong one and then we will be seen as imperfect. It'll be a wrong decision and we'll be seen as wrong somehow, seen as imperfect, seen as unworthy. On a more visceral level, though, this story that really appealed to me was from um, a book by Rachel Remen. Some, some of you may be familiar with Rachel Remen. She's a... Um, a daughter of a rabbi, beautiful, beautiful spiritual writer, teacher. Uh, she has worked a lot with cancer patients. And she told this story in one of her books, In My Grandfather's Blessings is the name of the book. And she told a story about a woman that she was seeing as a client. She's a counselor. And this woman had just impeccably, impeccable grooming, beautiful woman, just gorgeous, young. And she had had cancer at a young age in her 30s. And she was so ashamed and so afraid of appearing to be imperfect to her coworkers that she had actually scheduled a vacation where she told her coworkers that she was going to Europe. She had somebody in Europe send them postcards, and instead she went and had cancer surgery. She had breast cancer, and so she had a mastectomy. And the doctor had told her that she couldn't have reconstruction for another five years because they wanted to make sure that there wasn't a recurrence. So she said, okay, for five years, I'm not going to date, I'm not going to meet a man, I'm not going to be intimate with anybody. And then she met a man, and he liked her, and she liked him. And they went out to dinner one time to talk about their relationship, to talk about taking it to the next level, and she told him, I can't, I can't, I do not want you to see me imperfect. 
my body is not like it used to be. You cannot see me imperfect. And he said, well, that's okay. We'll just be friends then. And it went on and on and on and on until it was time for her to get her reconstruction. And after the date of the reconstruction, the breast reconstruction, she made an appointment to see Rachel Remen, to see her counselor. And she was aglow. And she was still beautiful and perfectly groomed. And Rachel was all excited, thinking, oh, this, this woman, this client of mine is going to tell me that she had a reconstruction. And the woman said, the client said, you know what? I didn't. We took the money that I was going to use for reconstruction, and we, went, we got married, and we went to Amsterdam, and we had this created. And she removed her clothing, and her husband, who was an artist, had created this artwork, a beautiful tattoo, that was like flowers all snaking along the vine of her scar. And it snaked around her back and went down in a cascade that just hit her bottom. <laughs> and Rachel said it was the most beautiful thing she had ever seen. And her husband, the artist, had said to her, you know, beauty is in uniqueness. It's not in what the world calls perfection. It is in uniqueness. And this beautiful woman learned this lesson, learned this lesson by taking the risk to show herself to become vulnerable, to become seen as imperfect. And through that willingness to be seen as imperfect, her perfection was revealed in a new and wonderful way. And again, how this, how this unwillingness to become vulnerable feeds the monkey is that if we, if we are unwilling to become vulnerable, we stay stuck in this illusion that we are flawed and imperfect as we are. That doesn't leave any room for the Holy Spirit. That doesn't leave any room for wholeness. That doesn't leave any room for the, the perfection that transcends all in appearances of imperfection, right? So perhaps the adaptive strategy around that, if we are struggling, if we are holding ourselves back from growing or trying something new because we are afraid that we will not appear perfect or we're afraid that we'll be too vulnerable, perhaps the strategy around that to address that is to reframe what perfection is. Can we find the perfection in what we were once calling imperfection, just as that woman found the perfection and the beauty in this scar that she had, in this physical scar that we had? Because we're all carrying around scars. Some of them just are not visible. You know, one of the ways that I experienced this was when I was first here eight, about 18 years ago as a minister, and I started teaching classes, and I thought, wow, I'm the minister. I have to have all the answers, Right? That didn't work. <laughs> I mean, I could have stopped and never taught a class because I didn't think I had all the answers and I wanted to be perfect and I wanted everybody to see me as wise and perfect and knowing and all the other, all the other baggage that comes with that. But what happened time and time again, which taught me about the value of my imperfection, my alleged imperfection of not knowing all the answers, is that it, my, our classes became much more of a peer-to-peer -peer learning situation where I didn't know the answer, somebody else would know the answer. And even if nobody knew the answer, I, I had sent away students, peer-to-peer -peer students, that nobody can answer their question, and they would come back with their own answer that they had found in a unique and special way that was perfect for them in the moment. So you see what I mean? In that thing that you or me or anybody might be labeling as imperfect, there is, a, there is a perfection embedded in that. And if we can just relax and allow the, the perception of imperfection to be and then just open us, us, ourselves up to something greater, that perfection will be revealed, I promise. It will. Because perfection, right? Like Hugh said in the reading, love so wants to love. Perfection, spiritual perfection, 
so wants to reveal itself in anything that we are calling imperfect. Let's go ahead and have the next slide. And that is... This one is probably worthy of a whole talk, which we'll do later on at some point. I am responsible for the feelings and behaviors of others. Anybody feel responsible for the feelings and behaviors of others? Just, just do what Judy Panda did. Like that. <laughs> you know, there are degrees of feeling responsible for the feelings and behaviors of others, and I think, you know, we feel that way. Uh, I, when I was talking about how anxiety recognizes threats, anxiety recognizes threats to our physical body, but it also recognizes threats to our connection, to our perception of connection. If we are cast out, then we feel anxious because we need connection in order to survive in this world. So if I am not enabling you, if I am not responsible for your feelings, if I'm not allowing you to blame me for feeling bad, then there's a chance that you may cast me out and then I'll feel disconnected and anxious. The question here is, do you ever deny your own well-being to enable others? Ah. <laughs> wow, where do I start with this? There, there, are many, <laughs> there are many, many examples, but the one, you know, the one that I hear about the most in my, in my work as a minister is with parenting, particularly parenting with people that, the parenting of, of children that, that suffer with addiction issues or children that are having trouble launching. I spoke to a friend recently who was telling me about his son, and his son was, uh, I guess, in his early 20s, and I think struggled a little bit with addiction and struggled, was struggling with finding himself, and he kept getting jobs and losing them and then coming back home to live with his parents, coming back home to live with his parents, right? And at some point that became impossible because of other family dynamics, so the father said to the son, this is... You have this new job. I just want to tell you, if you lose this job, you can't come home again. You need to fend for yourself. Now, to a loving parent, that might feel very cold. To the son, it might feel very cold. It might feel uh, like it induces anger, like it induces rage, like it induces a feeling of rejection. But what happened in this situation was that the son did not come home, that the son kept his job because he knew he couldn't come home, and he went on to excel at his job and get a better job and a better job and a house and a wife. And as my friend said, he has a swimming pool now. I don't have a swimming pool. And gosh, I, I think there are so many examples in this in our lives. It certainly happens, um, you know, in terms of my life, sometimes when I have to enforce policies and whatever, and people get really angry, but the policies are for the greater good. And I know that that happens in family structures or in work structures or in relationships. You know, even I remember once um, having somebody in my life a long time ago before I came here, somebody in my life who was a complainer, and I needed... In the situation of my life at the time, I needed to keep my energy up. I needed to keep my energy out of the realm of complaints. And finally, I had to tell to her, I had to say to her, you know, I just can't be around complaining all the time. I just can't be around this level of complaining. Well, that really gave her something to complain about, you know? <laughs> she complained about me and how mean I was, but I just had to stick to it. And I don't really know what the outcome of that was, but, you know, 
we all have rights. I, I often, when I'm talking about this, I, I talk about the rights of the sober. If somebody is addicted to complaining, they, will, they may say, I have a right to complain, I have a right to express myself. But you and I also have a right to not have to listen to it if it's affecting us in a negative way. So what, I guess the, the, the solution, the alternative response to denying our own well-being in order to enable others, I think the alternative response is to say to ourselves, you know, first of all, practice forgiveness, forgiveness of them, but also self-forgiveness, to know that we are good people, to also have compassion, but understanding that compassion also includes really good boundaries, that we are not serving somebody by enabling their weakness, that we don't have to be at the effect of their cause, and that we can move into a greater place of love and compassion and non-attachment that says, as you know, Terry Cole Whitaker is famous for saying this, what you think of me is none of my business, right? So that's it. Those are three ways that anxiety kind of, the monkey mind, the anxiety can stop us from doing what is in our best interest, in the best interest of the world, in the best interest of expressing our fullness of being. And I'm going to go ahead and end with a Rumi quote, if I could have the next slide. And this is true for all of us. You were born with potential. You were born with goodness and trust. You were born with ideals and dreams. You were born with greatness. You were born with wings. You are not meant for crawling, so don't. You have wings. Learn to use them and fly. Our willingness to work with spiritual law and anxiety in a constructive way will allow us to fly, bless our own lives, and bless the entire cosmos. Let us do that now. Let us pray. So we turn within and just breathe deeply into this holiness, into the holiness of the spiritual community, into the words that have been spoken, into every single detail of our lives here today in this shared encounter with love and grace, with compassion, with compassion for the human condition, for understanding anxiety, for understanding all of the things that we do as humans, to name these what we might call imperfections, to name them blessings because they are portals to the greater yet to be to a greater, a deeper understanding of love and life and kindness and goodness. I speak my word here today to know that we have all been blessed sacredly and secretly by this message, that we take these, these words, this message, and this entire group experience into our hearts and our lives to lead lives where we soar, where we live into our fullness and into the full grace of the one. How beautiful it is to know this for ourselves and I give thanks for this. I give thanks and I release these words into the dynamic mystery of the law. And together we say, 